talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. So, baby, talk to me like lovers do. I don't know that song. You don't know that song? Wow. Are you even gay? No. I don't. I mean. uh, Yeah. Okay. That's my, like, one proven Michael breaking bug. I know how to deploy. Yeah. I don't know how to take that input. I just crash. Hello, dear listeners. This week, in lieu of our normal episode, I am releasing a special crossover episode with my friend Jay's podcast, which is called Couplet, which is a poetry podcast about sharing poetry with the people we love. I only share poetry with the people I hate. (laughs) Well, between the two of us, we've covered 100% of people. We're not neutral on anyone at all. I went on my friend Jay's podcast to talk about poetry. I talked about the poetry of Yehuda Amichai, and Jay talked about the poetry of Nazim Hikmet. And it is a good, old, long, delicious episode. We talk about transcendence and mysticism and the military and Turkish communism and just like all kinds of really delicious stuff that I thought you guys would be into. Do you talk about Turkish wrestling? No, sadly. Okay. That somehow did not make it in there. Okay. All right. All right. So I hope you all enjoy this special crossover episode. And when you're done listening, go listen to the rest of the couplet episodes at soundcloud.com slash couplet hyphen pod. They are all super great, super delicious for you poetry lovers out there. What are we doing next week, Michael? Next week, we're doing a listener question that is about reactions to stuff that's going on in Israel. There's going to be some Talmud involved. We're going to talk about narratives of Jewish victimhood and assessing those. It's going to be great. It's going to be very exploratory. Given all the stuff that's going on right now, we wanted to let listeners know that we'll be talking about that. Well, listeners, enjoy this special crossover episode with Couplet, and we will talk to you soon. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. You know, we really can't manufacture those experiences of transcendence. It's sort of like trying to get a cat to sit on your lap. All you can do is sort of make your life sort of the most wonderful and comfortable lap possible and hope that the cat of a transcendent experience comes to sit on it. And sort of what we spend all of our time doing is making our lives sort of, you know, creating conditions where that kind of transcendence is more and more likely to arrive. But there's there's nothing you could do. You know, if you try to grab the cat and put it on your lap, that's a guaranteed way to not have a cat sit on your lap. Hi, welcome to Couplet. Couplet is a podcast about sharing poems with the people you love. In each episode, the guests and I talk about a poet we have picked. We'll read a couple of poems from each and reflect about what their work means for us. In this episode, Havadeh Cordova and I read the work of Yehuda Michai and Nazim Hikmet to connect people with their personal and political ideals and find the mystical experience that lies beyond hunger. I just went on a a, a walk um, with our with one of our mutual friends. So that was really fun. Oh, damn. That's great. Yeah, we are both vaxxed now. So it's like some of my first in-person, all-vaxxed hangouts. Uh, yeah, so that was really chill. And 
otherwise, I don't know. I've just been working a lot, teaching and, and making my own podcast. And then in between that, just like playing a lot of Animal Crossing. It's uh, the number one thing you talk about on the show. So. <laughs> Animal Crossing? Yes. Yeah, I know. I can't help it. It's I feel like it's unrelatable to 90% of my listeners, but it is it takes up about, you know, 50% of my day. So there's no way I can not talk about it. Queer Talmud at Animal Crossing feel like a match to me. So Yeah, I mean, really, we should just do a whole episode that's just about the Queer Talmud of Animal Crossing. <laughs> that's a great idea. I don't know how it would work, but it's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. We, we make up everything, so <laughs> I'm sure we could make up that, too. Yeah. What have you been up to? Um, I mean, all I do right now is I work my my dumb job which has been pretty, pretty unfulfilling. It's just like a lot of like rich college students and not a lot to do. Mm -hmm. And then I come home, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't know. It's hard to like imagine things to do when you mentioned like seeing people who are vaxxed. Like I've just started to get accustomed to that as an idea of possibility and haven't exactly gone out there and done anything with that other than thought about it i don't know i don't know it's just like i i hate the idea of keeping saying like returning to normal or something like that because what was normal and what is normal but it's what what can i do what what possibilities are there um outside of the restriction i guess yeah i mean it's hard to adjust to i have someone is going to come see me from out of town on sunday and that's going to be my first sort of like indoor post fax hangout And even that has felt sort of like cognitively, even though I've already planned to do it, sort of like cognitively difficult (laughs) to accept like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to hang out inside with someone that will happen. They're going to be close. Mm -hmm. It's just crazy how fast we sort of like adjust, have adjusted to this to where it now feels like surely this is how it always was. Life in captivity is exactly. like a, a thought I had um, for better or worse phrasing, but domesticated by the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any questions about like form? Um, Let's see. Questions about form. No, I think it's probably best to just get into it. You know, my little bio that I prepared is very tiny. But I feel like there's a lot that can be sort of discussed about it. So I don't know. We can just see how that goes. Yeah, that's this kind of my my go all with it is it's really what whatever you would like to talk about and whatever we would like to talk about together. Um, And it doesn't have to be no one has to be an expert here. And considering that we've chosen languages that I cannot even come (laughs) close to recognizing the phonemes of. Yeah, um, that's going to be. That's going to be a fun one on my part. I'm going to fuck up Russian, French, Turkish, and and Hebrew. I wish this volume that I had of Yehuda Amichai poetry had the originals. Like, I wish that it was interlinear or something like that. Because then we could get into some really interesting stuff. Yeah, a lot of his translations. I don't know. Did you want to? Did you want to start? Yeah. Yeah, I'll start. Yeah, sorry. I don't want to talk too much about it before we talk about it, but that would be that'd be great. So you can you can take it away, actually. 
Okay, yeah. So the poet that I've selected for us is Yehuda Amichai. So Yehuda Amichai was born in Würzburg, Germany, to an Orthodox Jewish family. So he's a, a very much, I would say, a Jewish poet, very distinctly so. And then when he was around 12, he immigrated to what at that time was British Mandate Palestine. And he was a member of what's called the Haganah, which is the literally that word means defense or enclosure. So a sort of, quote, defense force of the Jewish community in British Mandate Palestine. And then he also was a volunteer soldier in World War II and also fought in the Yom Kippur War. So he was basically in and out of active wartime duty from freaking 1943 to 1973 which is just cuckoo to me uh but is very relevant to his poetry and then after that 30 years of war he pretty much spent the rest of his life teaching and teaching at um secondary schools in Palestine and in America, um, teaching at secondary schools and universities. And he got married twice and had a couple of kids. And then he died of cancer in 2000 at age 76. And that is a brief summary of the very warful life of Yehuda Amichai. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting things to pull out of there. But learning about him being in the army and I didn't know much about the Haganah um before uh reading into his life a little bit and i still don't know too much but it's like the preliminary idf right Mm -hmm. yeah it's definitely the preliminary idf and also at that time in in british mandate palestine there was a lot more socialist presence in just in the political scene in general and in particular in the military so you know that that socialist energy never really came to fruition, but it's a sort of a very interesting jumping off point for me with his life that at some point he was sort of like this very idealistic, um, self-identified socialist Zionist, which, you know, we can debate all day about the compatibility of those terms, but that was definitely a, an influential part of his life. I want to quote him from one of his interviews, actually, because... He talks about that in his his choose towards Zionism. Um, he says Zionism had become a kind of revolution against traditional Jewish orthodoxy. There are two ways of rebelling against it. One was to become a communist, a Bolshevik, as in the Soviet, as in Soviet Russia. The other was to become a Zionist. At that time, I chose not in any thought out, formalized way the latter. I didn't think about socialism and communism until much later. So it's it's kind of. Um, it's so odd that he would he would he kind of came to the position without I don't know it, it was just happenstance to him it feels because this this interview is from the nineties yeah I mean I think I think today because there's so much there's such an active discourse outside the Jewish community you know just like in all communities I think there's a lot of active discourse about. Uh, like Zionism and Israel and Palestine. And so it's hard to imagine accidentally or sort of like unconsciously making that decision. But then in in that time, I feel like it was really sort of a mostly an interior discussion. And 
you know, he, his poetry, I think shows this, but I think he, as much as he tried to run away from his Orthodox Jewish roots, he was sort of always acting in reaction to him and they really flavor his poetry a lot. So I feel like, you know, it's sort of one of those things where he didn't really have, he couldn't let go of his identity as a Jew and he couldn't live out that identity religiously and so that being zionist is just sort of what you did at that time especially if you were from germany he specifically says those words i I had to do what i had to do what was right and he talks about how it being based in his like parents identity as an ideologies more than anything else Mm -hmm. but he's there at the beginning of what becomes israel too is another another facet that i think is hard for our, our modern I don't, I don't like using that word, but like are now just like sort of go back and reflect on. Um, but I do think is the reason why like coming to critiques about him will happen through this, but his work is very much based in like these, these eras of a developing uh, state of Israel and a developing Jerusalem and all these other things that have happened. He lived and experienced it better than it being theory or us now looking back. Right. I mean, it's very, um, you know, I think he's very easily identified as sort of a poet of Israel now, you know, like a sort of national poet. And it still feels like an open question to me how much he was, how much he sought that and and how much he embraced it or, or struggled against it. You know, like I think his his poetry is very tied up in the identity of the country. And I'm. I'm not sure, quite sure I've grasped how he felt about that. I think it's hard. And I think, and maybe we'll get into this sometimes, his idea of what he's doing, he, he's very stubborn. <laughs> I think if I met him in real life, I would I would have a, a hard time with him because he's a bit hard-headed. But he's very assured in himself and what he's doing, whether or not it's the, the truth. And um, some humility is kind of actually gotten through the poems more than anything else. Him as a, him as a person feels like a bit of a, a bit of a case to deal with, but that's a, that's just what it is. Right. I mean, I, I think that's kind of an uh, interesting and common phenomenon with poets who are also dudes, which is that the poetry is sort of their one place where they express vulnerability. My poet is no different. So, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a really common thing. It, it's interesting to think, you know, I he definitely saw himself as being in the tradition of of W.H. Auden, who was a very formative poet for me to discover in my teenage years, just sort of to like, I mean, for me, it was like that was some of the first queer poetry I ever read. So it was a very big awakening for me. And it's interesting to think about those two approaches to masculinity sort of like playing out in different ways. I think it's in one of his interviews, he talks about how when he actually was discovered by modern poetry and translation and Ted Hughes, um, or like when he was not discovered, but like popularized and translated into English, which has a great deal to do with his sort of treatment in America. But he was in this like performance space with Auden, with uh, Neruda and with Pound in the same room. Just just chilling there. And that's that's the most ridiculous combination of people I could ever think to just read their poetry against each other. <laughs> yeah. 
nevertheless, um, did you, did you, have you known of his poetry for a while? Like when did you first come to it? Uh, no, it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon. So, um, I have a boyfriend right now who I've been dating for about a year who, um, I didn't realize at first when we started dating, I didn't realize he was so into poetry. And it's one of the things that's sort of come out over the course of the relationship. That's been a really pleasant surprise to me. And at one point he just surprised me by getting me this poetry book because he had read some of this guy's poetry and and he thought that I might like it. So yeah, it was very much, uh, came into my life by surprise and I wasn't sure whether I was going to like it because I, I, you know, I tend to, I have trouble reading poetry in any sort of like amount of volume. So I started by reading just like one poem out of this book a day for a while. And I, you know, I've given up on that, but I read a pretty good chunk of it. And, um, yeah, I think the reason that it really started speaking to me is because I am a relatively religious Jew and his use of religious metaphor really like worked for me, like really worked on that part of myself. And I was really surprised by that coming from such a quote, non-religious poet. Mm. Do you feel, um, I'm kind of getting a little ahead of myself, but one of the things that, some of the people who are writing about his work said was in the original Hebrew, biblical references are constant, but in translation, some of that gets lost. Do you feel like there are still a lot of like deeper biblical references and things that retain in the translations here that you connect to? The language is a bit flawed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think there is, um, I don't know. There's something about the shape of the language that's pretty biblical to me. And there are certain references. So for instance, one of the poems we're going to read is God's hand in the world. And that concept of hand in the world is something that comes up in, not in Bible, but in later Jewish literature. So yeah, I do feel like I see, even if I don't see the explicit allusions as much in English, I definitely feel like the shape of the language is very I do see this sort of biblical shape of the language. Maybe we can talk more about that later if you want, but do you know which one um, you're going to start with? Yeah, let's do God's hand in the world first. God's hand in the world. One, God's hand is in the world, like my mother's hand in the guts of the slaughtered chicken on Sabbath Eve. What does God see through the window while his hands reach into the world? What does my mother see? Two, my pain is already a grandfather. It has begotten two generations of pains that look like it. My hopes have erected white housing projects far away from the crowds inside me. My girlfriend forgot her love on the sidewalk like a bicycle, all night outside in the dew. Children mark the eras of my life and the eras of Jerusalem with moon chalk on the street, God's hand in the world. I, I don't know if we got a lot of the humor necessarily of our two poets, but it is it is like a little funny start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I think that's part of what I love about this poem is that it's like funny and then not funny <laughs> at the same time. Like it's it's 
the idea, the guts of the slaughtered chicken is like funny, but then I think about it for a second and I'm like, oh no, it's too real. Which I think is is the case for me just because I, when I read that first line, like I immediately, I really f- identified with that slaughtered chicken. <laughs> <laughs> really? What, what do you mean by that? Um, I guess, and maybe this is just particular to my experience as a religious Jew, but a lot of times I feel, it, I feel quite viscerally the hand of God sort of in my guts um, in a certain sense. I mean, you know, a lot of the religion of Judaism is about obligation, which, which sort of, you know, it implies this relationship of, of, um, I don't know, of, of force from God, I would say. I don't know. I guess just there, there are certain times where that sense that I'm maybe my, my self being is being rearranged by God in a way that is relatively out of my control. Is it like, um, I guess there's a lot of fear in that. Like one of the, one of the writers, Abramson, um, sort of like talks about Amakai's God and it's sort of this, this controlling and manipulative God too, which is a little, I don't know. Catholics love to, to just submit. So they never, they never question. (laughs) Is it sort of like fear? I don't know. Is that, that feels like an odd place. Well, I mean, I think Amichai's God is really shaped by his war experiences and and to a certain extent i feel like i can identify with that just like being a trans woman in the world feels quite like being a part of a non-consensual war experience all the time but i don't know for me it doesn't feel so much like fear it just feels more like helplessness and and sometimes my response to that is fear and and sometimes my response to that can be sort of an embrace of that condition and that's just i guess sort of the razor's edge of of religion (laughs) is is, you know choosing how to react from that you know intuition of helplessness i guess like by comparing god's hand to like the mother is like the mother taking on a godness yeah i mean i think that's one of the interesting things is that we have a, a masculine gender for God when his hands reach into the world, but it's also being portrayed by a, a female character in the mother. And I think there's maybe some interesting, interesting stuff going on there. I think the quality that I really appreciate when we, when he brings in this metaphor of the window is that it sort of feels like, you know, just like the mother is sort of just distractedly slaughtering the chicken, sort of part of her ordinary routine to reach in there and get the chicken. Amichai um, is sort of describing this same kind of like blase attitude God has towards messing with the world. <laughs> a few floods. Um... Yeah, a few wars, world war holocaust yeah it's a blip in a in in an eternal existence Uh, yeah exactly it's just sort of something you know something that happens in the the weekly cycle of god's life i guess like using that the the pain being a grandfather in the two generations i thought a lot about that and him watching jerusalem develop but it's also like as as much as he might want he's not god 
so his his actually does grow his his pain his life does grow so this this instantaneous moment that's like a blip to to god is not the same it's like his moment of witness maybe i mean i i also think there's like this part of him that's sort of mourning getting left behind some especially with this line about the white housing projects um far away from the crowds inside and also the girlfriend forgetting her love on the sidewalk like i feel like there's this element here of of he's sort of mourning that he is left alone with his pain in a way that god is not and and that's tied to the to the development of jerusalem you know since that's sort of really marks his life cycle as a poet. There's two things that Amichai has said um, that kind of echo this. One is he talks about Jerusalem becoming like a stand-in for God for people there. So rather the pursuit of Zionism overtaking the sort of like pursuit for greater things or like greater understanding, greater connection, greater religiousness. Right. I mean, this is very much still the case in in American Judaism today. It's sort of a funny, common thing to say that, you know, if if you go to a synagogue and say you don't believe in God, they'll, you know, the rabbi will say, neither do I come on in. But if you say you don't believe in Israel, you'll be kicked out of the place. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, sad, but true. It's quite an intimidation. Yeah. Well, like the other, and he talks about becoming bored with, with the religious, with religiousness. I think it's like in the introduction to that Robert Alter collection that we're reading from, but he talks about that. And then he also in interviews has referred to God being a stand in for his father. One of the quotes I have here and why I kind of want to compare it is with the mother is with this left behind is this, um, inability to become i guess the same he says if god is a father then father is god the metaphors are equal so my father is actually my private god when i was a child like every child i thought my father really was a god and when i rebelled against him he was still a god but then i found out of course he was human a, be- a human being i think i think in some type point we can say god is actually his father in that original scene but god is also greater than his father and like maybe the concept of even making his father into a god is the same as making jerusalem jerusalem into god is the same as being stuck here in the present in reality and not being able to be in these um i don't know more metaphorical beings that he's able to wonder about but not actually witness yeah, I mean, I think something that's that's constantly going on in his life and in his work is he he rebels against something and he sees himself rebelling against it. And then he realizes that in his rebellion, he's still defined by the thing. So, you know, he he rebels against orthodoxy and, and ultimately is still defined as a rebel from orthodoxy. He rebels against his father and then you know his father comes to be a huge figure in his poetry he you know he sort of keeps rejecting these things and then keeps continuing to be encompassed or or overwhelmed by them which i think is very you know it's a very uh it's a common plight in mystical literature to sort of run from something only to find yourself 
running to the, that very same thing in the end. I think he doesn't, he doesn't even consider himself necessarily for running from it. I think this is maybe the point of me calling him stubborn and maybe it's also the appropriation of him too. Um, like a two set point. One point is that like he talks about using biblical language, using Hebrew and modernizing it as like, he doesn't, he doesn't run from it. He just uses it. He doesn't avoid it. He uses it because it's part of him. And he talks about like all these other things that he can uh, incorporate because he's got this humanistic approach. He defines it as, and by doing that, you use what is at your fingertips and you just, you apply it when it feels right. But he also like debates with that, I think on some other terms that makes it weird that he does uh, appreciate Auden as much as he does. One of the, one of the writers, I think it's uh, Hannah Kronfeld who talks about how one, there's no way that his work is anti-Zionist, but there's certainly a lot in his work that sort of contradicts the happy-go-lucky idea that maybe some other more modern and Americanized Zionist movements have been like. And even like in Jerusalem, like he has this one poem, which is about um, this monument. And I can't remember the exact name, but it's all of these uh, cars that are supposed to represent like the destroyed, bombed vehicles but they're not the vehicles themselves. They've been brought there and poems like that are read on like remembrance days yet while partaking in these wars, I don't think he's very, (laughs) I don't think he's very fantastical about it and fictionalizing it. And it's, it's hard to like then say like, I guess I forgot where I was going with this. Just, just when he is in this poem and he's talking about the errors of Jerusalem, he's not necessarily keeping them as clean and neat. They're, they're still like a bicycle in the dew where it gets rusted over or stolen. Or I'm not sure. I'm not sure with that metaphor specifically. Yeah, I mean, there is this, I mean, especially in the early poems of his, I feel like there is sort of a lot of mooning over <laughs> different women. But yeah, I mean, I think you're speaking to something that is what we were getting at a little bit earlier, which is that especially posthumously, he's very much become this national poet of Israel. And and I think that's a common thing. You know, poets write stuff all the time that ultimately ends up becoming sort of recuperated by political bodies that they didn't necessarily wholeheartedly embrace. And I think that's something that happens with Amichai's poetry is that it, you know, sometimes the poetry about war becomes propaganda against his intentions yeah yeah for sure it's odd though i guess because what we're doing now is admitting and i think this is a maybe just something that i'm struggling with in my own communications with most people is to find the nuance in it then where some of the writers about his work have been mm, a little flippant with their analysis or like they're a little too wanting it to be something totally against the system mm-hmm. that he was part of and living within because he, he lived in Jerusalem his whole life I believe um, or he moved within Israel I think to Tel Aviv at one point but he is both in and out he's not he's not necessarily so easy to just describe as this one thing 
And I think a lot of uh, what American critique and what we want out of maybe our, our artists is for them to be this one thing. And unfortunately, they're not. They're like, they're very human. Right. And I mean, also what we want out of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I did write, uh, when you gut a chicken, do you look inside? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I the way I imagine it, right, is that his mother, you know, slaughters a chicken every Shabbat. Because, I, I mean, the, maybe this is not, everyone would not necessarily have picked up on it, but on, on Shabbat Eve, which is Friday night, because Jewish days go from, they start at night, and then they go till the next sundown. So on Erev Shabbat, which is Shabbat Eve, you are sort of supposed to have the best meal you can possibly afford to have. So if you're ever going to slaughter a chicken in the week, that's going to be the one time you do it. So I sort of imagine this is like a, you know, something she's doing every week and something that her mother before her did every week. So I, I imagine this whole process as sort of just like she doesn't have to look, you know, she can just she knows what it feels like and she can just sort of be absentmindedly staring out the window. Do you think it's. I guess, and I think this is a, a critique on myself. Um, is it careless? I don't know if there if we can make a distinction between absent-minded and careless. You know, it's like when I crochet because I've been crocheting for a while. I do it absent-mindedly, and that's sort of what's peaceful about it, which feels different to me than when I'm sort of like deliberately not taking care. Yeah, I, I worry. Um... One of the the poets I covered a while back talked about like slaughtering a goose and the mother doesn't see the difference between meat from the supermarket. And I don't think that's the metaphor that's being gotted at um, that, like, it's not paying attention to, but it's rather like in the process. Things maybe are not like absolute. They're not. It's not meaningless. It's certain. It's certainly meaningful, but it is a repeated task. It is. um a dedicated task with a different mindset. Right. Something that's that's interesting to me that I'm just thinking about that as you say that is that it's it's almost certain that she didn't kill this chicken. You know, in in Judaism, the the slaughter of a chicken is is a pretty strict slaughter. I mean, slaughter of any animals is a pretty strictly governed process. And whoever shechted slaughtered this chicken um they probably, you know, it was probably the the kosher butcher of the neighborhood. Although I actually don't know how prevalent it was for people to, you know, for people to know enough to slaughter at home. Definitely at some point in history, people were doing much more kosher slaughter at home. I don't know. Just an interesting possibility that, you know, the ch the chicken came to her dead and then she further prepared it. This is also one of his earlier poems. So, yeah, it's hard to know how things have changed over time. Um, even though it's not one that's been written when he was a child because he didn't start writing until much later in life, his 40s. It is, at least in my eyes, it's about childhood and the children marking the eras. Um, he's also talked about a lot how he thinks children are these like pure things. And like I think his most famous poem is probably uh, God Takes Pity on Kindergarten Children. Mm -hmm. And he worked with children, of course, but... I don't know. What do, what do you get from this last stanza? Because maybe maybe that's a little too vague, but I, I, I struggle maybe with knowing it beyond it. Just like the next generation will be 
in a way. And I don't know if that is supposed to be God's hand, the next generation. Yeah. I mean, I sort of experienced this, um, this last stanza sort of like a, a Picardy third, like it's a, it's stanza that's sort of like redeeming the mood of the whole poem. The way that I read it is sort of like the children marking the street is sort of the, the other side of the hand in the world, you know, the, the dark and light sides of the moon, even if you will, like his mother's hand in the chicken is sort of like a sign of what it looks like when God's hand in the world is sort of awesome and terrible. And then the progression of like children is sort of like what it looks like when God's hand in the world is sort of like wonderful. I'm going to say some Hebrew (laughs) and I'm going to mispronounce it. Great. Benaim, which is in between, comes up as a concept in one of the the writings from Hannah Kronfeld. And that being very important for Amichai, because he is in between generations. He's in between like old style Zionism and like modernist Zionism. He's in between that as well, which is odd to think. He's in between, I don't know. This the street is a space in between. The window is a space in between. The the places where the, the housing is and the places where the crowds are are not together. They're, they're, there's just like the separateness. I'm curious if I'm curious if all this is supposed to speak to that of of that impracticality of being, maybe. Yeah, I mean, and that also makes me think of sort of like his his experience. I imagine he experiences him as sort of existing in between in between eras of Jerusalem, you know, it's sort of past that era of of early development and war. And he is sort of this artifact from that period that is sort of existing and and perceiving this this new period that's coming, but not quite fully a part of it. I mean, I think it's it's a really beautiful part of his poetry and reading about his poetry, I think, gave me a lot more insight into some certain moments that I think are more on that, that edge where we're once again, back to like, what does he mean? Is it, is it so concrete? No, it's, it's kind of in that unknowing space, but also just like something that I think is easy to take to it too. And like necessary for me is like, he took part in the war of independence. He took part in the Yom Kippur war. He took part um, in Egypt, all these other, these, other wars, yet he doesn't necessarily implicate himself in any of that violence, at least mm-hmm. not by what I've read. And there is there is a point there that is is concerning, maybe. And it's maybe the more concerning thing than just about the complications of trying to take a modern critique to his Zionism, um, which I think Americans do in our, our anti-Semitic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, he has sort of a a common thing that you see in in war poetry, which is that he has a lot of mourning to do about sort of the deaths on quote his side, and not a lot of mourning or thoughtfulness to offer about his own actions. Yeah, I'm curious if there are poems where it's just like him coming to terms with the the violence he's caused because he kind of talks about it flippantly too. I don't know. I mean, I can't, I can't, I also don't believe I can 
entirely talk about it to any sort of white having not been in that situation too. And it's hard to, to, to place oneself there. Um, so when he describes it as the thing he had to do, and when he describes this, this feeling of um, growth and the, the reference of control or anything, it's, it's not a reality I've, I've known to feels like a necessary part. I don't know. Sorry. That's okay. Not, not the most concrete thoughts. Um, <laughs> do you have anything else you thought you were thinking about while you read this? Poem? Um, I feel, I feel pretty complete on this poem. So that means it's me. I'm glad to have not gone first. Uh, this is the <laughs> first time, but I also feel like I, I've done less preparation about like specific events. Um, mm. I think, I think, Nazim Hikmet, who I'm going to talk about, is a little hard to just pinpoint. And the poems I've picked don't necessarily easily structure themselves alongside his biography. Like one of them does, but one of them is a little more shaky. But Nazim Hikmet is probably Turkish, Turkey's most popular poet of all time. And yet his work has been outlawed in Turkey for most of the time he was alive, as well as he was imprisoned in Turkey for a good 17 years of his life uh, for his poetry and for what they thought his poetry was doing to radicalize people. And he's kind of at this, this weird point in Turkish history where the Ottoman Empire is falling apart and you have the independence movement in Turkey, Red led by Mustafa Kemal or Ataturk, who is thought of today as a pretty progressive leader of Turkey, especially in juxtaposition to some of the dictators that follow him and some of the other regimes. But there is still at the time of that whole thing going on, a lot of fascist upbringing and leanings within Turkey and anti-Soviet sentiment. And Hikmet, who is from a middle-class, pretty well-off family of artisanal-leaning people, ends up going to the Soviet Union as a young child, or not as a young child, but as, like, a teenager. I think it's his 18th year. He ends up in Soviet Russia, and he ends up with Mayakovsky and Meyerhold and all these other great Soviet uh, artists who soon are to be thrown into concentration camps by the Stalinist regime. But he's with them at that time and he he witnesses Lenin's uh, funeral he does all this great theater work in in Soviet Russia and then he comes back and he's like I'm ready for the Turkish Communist Party and his first time being imprisoned actually it's because in the translation of his works that he's written in what Ataturk uh, has done is romanize the Turkish alphabet he has this word that looks like minorities, but is actually talking about a Greek figure. And because it's supposedly going to revolutionize the minorities, he's thrown in prison for a little bit. And there's this whole thing with uh, him in handcuffs and him kind of like basking in the the glory of it. Um, where I think uh, Amchai is definitely like, he wants to sort of like fade into the the background a lot of the time. Hikmet's all about being in the front and being provocative with it. Mm. So he's in prison this one time. He gets out. He's just working. He's kind of just living his life. 
and these military cadets at the the college or whatever, they are reading his work. And one of them comes to him and tries to like get him to talk to him because he's just really interested in his poetry. But Hikmet, who knows that there is danger now in producing himself as explicitly political and being attached to a, a military cadet would be also uh, a possible problem, uh, denounces him, sends him away, but still he's then arrested right afterwards and ends up going to prison, staying in solitary confinement for two months uh, because he might radicalize the other prisoners. And it starts the the crusade that keeps him in prison for those 17 years when he was forced to a, a 28 year sentence just for the students reading his poetry. Uh, when he's arrested, he's told he's he's charged under Article 94 of the Military Criminal Code and conspiring to cause soldiers to defy military discipline. And in his closing statement, he insisted on the distinction between personal beliefs, which were not a crime under military law and political actions. Yes, I am a communist. These are my ideals, but I do not subject anyone to communist propaganda. One cannot bring about communism by converting a couple of students at military school. Yet all of this is sort of like thrown aside. And he, he's put in prison. And I guess I'm, I'm finding it hard to maybe end the biography because he ends by crossing the Black Sea in a little rinky-dink boat and then going to the Soviet Union and living out the rest of his life there. But it's not necessarily going to come up and feels odd to, to talk too much about it. But one of the things that kind of strikes about Hikmet is he talked, he talked about how in Soviet Russia, he can, he can speak to a theater and he can use his big booming voice and, and reach all of the people there. But then he has to whisper when he goes home and that sort of divide of, of being both the most popular poet by the people and the most popular poet by like just history yet not able to actually exist in one's home country, I think is, is an interesting divide, especially when we're, when we're comparing him to Amichai, um, who I, I think also has that odd divide of like how his poetry is treated. Yeah, this is all actually also, I mean, we're not going to talk about a third poet on the show today, but this all also really reminds me of Martina Espada, who is an American poet who I also feel like is an unwilling has an unwilling relationship to this nation. He wrote this poem, this this great poem, Alabanza and Praise of Local 100, which is about members of the the sort of food service union who died on 9/11, um which is this really great poem in the in the line of the rest of his work sort of talking about people being consumed and destroyed by the American system, but it then unfortunately has become just like a 9/11 poem that people read on 9/11. And like has become like a tool of patriotism instead. It's just a really interesting sort of genre of poets. Yeah, it's weird to take because Hikmet's such a political poet. And one of the, the documentarians actually like talks about how like I don't care who he is. He's not prophesizing to me. It doesn't matter what his politics is, but it does matter what his politics is. And the, the politics behind the work do actually matter. Mm-hmm. But I can hop into it. Um, yeah, I'm ready to hear a poem. The Provocateur. This man sold his comrade. On a tray of gold, this man sold the bloody severed head of his comrade. 
Fear prowls in the feet of this man like his shadow. This man lives in dark waters. Every evening when the sun goes down, he is the one who sneaks up on you, tiptoeing slowly, dragging his wife's panties on the sidewalk. You ought to know him by the tinkling of the leper's bell hanging from his heart. And you ought to know that bit by bit, his leprosy makes his soul's flesh fall off. This man is hungry today. He is hungry. But in this man, even the great mighty hunger has lost its sanctity. This man, friends, at dusk one day, sold his comrade on a tray of gold. This man sold the bloody severed head of his comrade. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious... The for, when I was reading this poem, preparing to do this episode with you, not knowing as much about Hikmet, I really thought this was a poem of sort of self-recrimination. But now I'm I'm not so sure about that. I think it's both, and I think I'm I'm I've only come to that in the last few days that it's both because uh, Hikmet is a provocateur for sure. Mm-hmm. I think trolly even. Uh, to his own detriment before he's arrested he's trying to stay out of trouble and it's it's kind of he he doesn't think that the charges are going to go through or anything so he's pretty confident he'll get out and then he doesn't but he did have a whole family at the time that he divorces while in prison (laughs) which is is a whole nother thing oh but he he is actually trying to stay out of trouble versus what he was doing before, which was being part of all these several newspapers um, to the point he got blacklisted and he couldn't get work. So he was just like working under pseudonyms and doing what he could to sort of make enough money. So his his wife and uh, their family would have enough money to live. But at the same time, he was before that like antagonizing previous Turkish writers who were explicitly apolitical or like holding these Ottoman values and just like sort of praising the regime and something about the, the Kambalist regime is that it did a lot of the modernization that sort of makes Turkey into a very Western uh, economy, sort of in the same way that like post world war two, Japan, comes to now is sort of the same thing that's happening in Turkey at that, that time. And the Romanization that I mentioned earlier is part of that. But he had written these articles where he was just calling out each and every person he could think of. And he was trying to, I forget the the exact terminology he used, but it like take down the idols rather than maybe have conversations with them, which he eventually does upon the time. But at first he calls them all provocateurs, betrayers to the cause, which I think is a really rough way to get to know someone. Feels like the the modern thing of just you're hanging out with your anarchist friends and everybody's worried about a fed. Right. Everyone's getting uh, snitch jacketed. This is the first poem of his that I read and I really loved. I'm not exactly sure why. Yeah, I want I was curious to hear more about what what you love about it. I feel like I haven't I feel like I haven't figured out how to feel about it yet. Well, I think it's it's kind of funny. And then like, I think one of the things that I Hikmet is his language is extremely casual, yet political in the same light. And I think by combining that with this poem that also, at least in the translation, plays a lot with traditional form and rhyme in a way that I typically don't read. 
repetitiveness that I typically don't read. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's just it feels like I don't write that many political poems when I write poems. But when I want to write political poems, I want to write just like a little a little sneaky uh, <laughs> talk about the the man who sold his comrade out. Right. I mean, I feel like political poems are sort of they've become gauche. Yeah, for sure. It's not it's not like cool poetically to write a political poem anymore. Yeah. A lot of like political poems, I think, also exist in the realm of slam or like performance poetry. Yes. Which is not to say that. Yes. There are only two realms of poetry now, which are slam and rupee cow. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I call it like I see it. And unfortunately, I'm not loving what I see. I think about um, Adrian Rich has this essay where she talks about seeing uh, they're going to the bookstore in the mall and there's only being one row of poetry books in the very back on the bottom shelf and it's mostly just self-help books but she couldn't I think even imagine what YouTube would do to poetry and I think the I, mean, I have no problem with performing poetry performing poetry is a huge part of the cause when i think of like samiel kasim or um hikmet himself uh and amichai even like these poets are very much talking about how they're read and like how they're performed but it's it's almost like instead of the poet being informed by the poem and the poem informing the feeling the feeling informs the poem so i think in this case what it does is go against that. And I'm not sure how, how correct that is, or if I'm just inputting my own ideas of like, it was better back in back when everybody was a, a little actual Marxist Leninist, which is what Hikmet would define as rather than uh, a tanky on the internet, which is not anything. <laughs> yeah. This, I, uh, I haven't encountered any, any tanky poetry recently. Um, so if nothing else, that says something about the change of the, of the genre of person. I am very, um, one thing that I feel like really stands out to me in this poem that feels different than the rest of the poem is the wife's panties. In fact, I feel like in the rest of the poem, there's, there's only you, the comrade and the man. And when the wife's panties come into it, it is like really shifts the number of subjects involved in the scene. What do you think it, it does then by bringing that in? I'm not sure. I feel like to me, it it's almost sort of compounding, you know, the the depravity of this man, you know, is he's not only sort of degrading himself and his comrades, but also even like his own family is sort of involved in this process of degradation. It's like, I don't know, I'm not going to use communal responsibility doesn't feel like the terminology, but like an injury to one is an injury to all or by being kind of seedy, like you're being seedy. Mm -hmm. I think it, it, it feels a little cheap in some points to like specifically bring in this like perversity. Right. I was honestly going to say, I feel like there's something about it that's sort of like subtly calling this guy a faggot. Hmm. I think there's potential for it. I also think that this poem is about Hikmet himself in a way. 
in the way that people see him. Because there's a lot of... He does not get along with the Turkish Communist Party. And, for instance, like, I want to read... Um, uh, a thing he had in between him and... Between him and Hikmet Kvolchimla. Kvolchimla. Uh, who's another Turkish communist at the time. Who he was not friends with until they were in prison together. <laughs> they were, they were like, ideologically opposed... But it's it's like the it's I think it's the playful nature of Hikmet that's that's there in that line too. This is them talking to each other. Nazim pulled him aside one day to confide in him that the revolution would be tomorrow. I can't believe it. That's wonderful. And how is our socialist revolution going to happen? I can't divulge the details. If you could just tell a little bit about the general mechanism, the mechanism is simple. I have the governors of the important provinces in the palm of my hand. If I say go, they'll jump. Governors? Certainly. Governors. Excellent plan. You'll get rid of the bourgeois government with the bourgeois government. The governors are not bourgeois. They're socialists. I see. Still, you'll pull out the nail of the nail. So what are you waiting for? Nazim stood right in front of me, blocking my way. His blue eyes stared into mine. Waving his right index finger in my face, he winked slyly. One nail is missing. One tiny nail. But I'll have it soon. People, people would call him a provocateur. But I, I think it is it is it's a masculinity thing of just like you can be a little grody, but it's it. I guess to what point is is a is a comrade, not a comrade. If it's just disgusting that he's dragging the panties, it's it's not. It's disgusting that he's it, they make the, the, the reference to leprosy. The leprosy itself is is not made in any like sort of degrading way or comment. The leprosy on the heart, the leprosy inside, is the the leprosy that is counting more. Does that does that make sense? Because that, that's another thing I focused on. Because it is like basic emasculation, right? I mean, I I really actually the the stanza about the leprosy is one of my favorite. I think the idea of the tinkling of the leper's bell hanging from his heart feels very. Uh, I don't know something about this, that idea that there's like a sound that you could hear, um, to recognize this man, but it's also sort of like internal and inaudible. Something about the contradiction of those two possibilities really worked for me. Well, it's like (laughs) tinkling would be easy if, if every, every time somebody who wasn't as devoted to the cause or like who wasn't necessarily obviously in the right um, which is I think where we want everything to be so simply defined as good and bad without any of that gray having to deal with it it'd be easy if there was a tinkling if there was a sound if there was like some identical being we can just point to them and say that's it that's the thing that's the thing not to be but I think that's much harder when when you recognize that People aren't aren't like that. It's not you don't just walk into the the police station uh, with a a gold tray with your dead comrade on it these days, or even then it's it's whispers. It's maybe like doing the the analytics of what someone says and what they mean, and also accepting like maybe the growth. I think that's a thing that I'm I'm pretty like uh, into. <laughs> is a is a weird way to put that. 
like I, I will take anyone on as long as they're willing, willing to learn and, and have the, the humility. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting thinking about that. Like one of the parts of this poem that I sort of see and, and sort of identify with is there's this sort of like bit by bit, um, sort of like losing your, whatever strength it is that involves you in the cause, you know, bit by bit, his leprosy makes his soul's flesh off. Um, and even when he says, even the great mighty hunger has lost its sanctity to me, I feel like there's this undertone of like, you know, eventually suffering sort of loses its nobility <laughs> and no longer makes you more committed to the cause. Um, which feels very, I, I don't know. I feel like the sort of, I feel like I've experienced that sometimes to a certain extent of just like, you know, the things being other than they should just keeps going on and it keeps chipping away at me. And, and at a certain point that that injury is no longer sort of like serving as fuel. I'm I'm going to use the language from the poem, but is is hunger a bad thing then? Is a desire what I interpret it to be a desire for different and for more a bad thing in the face of suffering or otherwise? Well, I I I thought of the hunger uh, the way I was reading the hunger as a was as a literal hunger, you know, like a literal um, sort of <laughs> state of hunger for food that, especially I think in a certain a communist imaginary of a certain period there was sort of like this nobility to being the the downtrodden the hungry that was going to band together and and transform things and and so the suffering of the working class had a sort of sanctity to it and then you know eventually that that hunger that sort of like gnawing goes on for long enough and it loses that sanctity if it's not sort of expressed through evolution yeah there's like um i don't know it's um to to be so obsessed maybe with uh the material struggle almost does that does that feel similar it like it it weakens the actuality because Hikmet, he he comes from a different upbringing, <laughs> and to make to make all all things just about like this is for the cause, this is for the cause, this is for the cause. Forget that like the cause is also to live, which Hikmet I think later in life really does sort of appreciate and sort of tone down because like before he's in prison, he sort of like turns to his friends who are trying to exist under the regime, knowing that they could be persecuted, knowing that their families could be persecuted and saying like, you're, you're, you're betraying it. You're betraying the cause. And it takes years. For instance, with this one friend, he cuts off for becoming a, a liberal journalist in a paper uh, to talk to again. Cause, cause that, that person was not doing things the right way. And I wonder how much fantasizing about that might hurt us overall. Um, that we must always be hungry. We must always be um, in struggle. 
like how do we how do we maybe come uh, to terms with the good that is our community now or like not being hungry together but like feeling full right yeah i mean i think there's a certain amount of there's a certain amount of of hunger or or discontentment that's necessary to sort of get to a place of i don't know like working towards change or sort of attaching yourself to a cause and then at a certain point that is no longer enough sort of like a a negative emotion no longer cuts it and i think maybe part of the reason that is is because you know if you're acting let's say you're you're inspired to become a socialist by the by the conditions of your own life you know there actually are ways to materially can improve the conditions of your own life theoretically um if you sort of give up that idea of collective change you can sort of soothe your own hunger and and deal with that that negative motivation but once you bring into focus the sort of positive goals of sort of meeting everyone's hunger then then it no longer becomes possible to sort of give up and try to just get those things soothed on your own if that makes sense yeah at the swimming pool here i take off my fearful and foolish clothes and put them in the holy arcs of the changing room and the metallic smell and the smell of water and rust are the incense of yearning for distant ports and for worlds that are gone from the world I swim tranquilly from side to side in the pool, in the rhythm of my life and the movements of memory. On my lips, the murmur of my locker's number, like the recitation of psalms, like a charm that saves from destruction. And with me, the young men and women in zestful swimming and purity greater than all the baths of purification, lovely and tanned by the sun's desire and gilded by my desire. I am the son of Meyer and Frida and the son of mortality. I, who am going to die, bless those who will remain after me like a gladiator in the stadium before the last combat. I, who lose things, describe in passionate words what I'll lose. I, whose house will be raised and whose body will not praise the new houses and the bodies still fresh and filled with love. I come out of the water. I towel my body like another man's body and put on my clothes. I pronounce the blessing for the pool and forget, as in a kiss on the brow, the number. So one of the reasons I really was attracted to this poem is because it felt not quite as war-centric, which, uh, you know, the war tends to sort of dominate Amichai's poetry. But here I just felt like I experienced this poem as, as a really poignant meditation on impermanence that actually you know it left me with with a lot more peace than than a lot of amikai's poetry leaves me with yeah it's very it's one of his later poems too i think 89 um if i remember right and it to me it's it and this is how i i understand most of the poem is it's just about death and it's about his own death and his own body whereas like the like another's man's body, which I love the homoeroticism of, I don't think is really intended. It is more the translation, but like the <laughs> washing of a body once it's, once it's passed, this is this whole movement where he lets himself into the water. Um, unfearing. Right. I mean, I, I love, 
there's sort of this metaphysical ideology that's sort of underpinning this poem, which is the idea that that his identity is sort of only created by his memory of his locker number. You know, it's that word he's sort of self-created and self-sustained by his own thought processes. And and as he forgets that number, it sort of allows him to, you know, pass on to disincorporate. And I really like that because in a certain way, it feels very, very um, true to my own <laughs> experience of selfhood and identity, that it's something that's just sort of sustained by by consciousness. And then eventually we we sort of let it go. I'm thinking about the lingering feeling of the kiss in relation to that. Like it's like a sensation, but it's no longer there. Um, or even like to remember the self and to remember the number and to forget the number and to forget the self and to just like exist sort of coolly and calmly are all, I don't know, they're, they're impermanent themselves too. They're not tangible, maybe. I think I, I maybe, maybe I also have a problem of seeking tangibility in things too. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's also something interesting going on here with the the young men and women in zestful swimming and in purity greater than all the baths of purification. So just to clarify, this sort of specific thing that's being referenced here is um, what's called a mikvah, um, which is a sort of Jewish ritual bath that. Um, one immerses in at sort of set moments. So like after menstruation, after birth, uh, after coming in contact with a dead body, et cetera, et cetera, sort of like a, a set purification ritual. And uh, there's a tension here, I think, between (laughs) these young men and women in zestful swimming, um, lovely and tanned by the sun's desire and gilded by my desire. Um, I don't know, between this very, like, uh, I would say secular purity and religious purity. And then I'm I'm also really, really curious and, and undecided about what his desire is here. What what desire he has that's gilding them. I mean, he's he's always vague. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the, the the funny bit is, and this is quoting him, actually. He feels that metaphors are a way out of loneliness. A metaphor is reaching out. We are groping for words. We say, ah, I'm looking for words. I can't express myself. So we need something, something real. But you are groping for words. You want to keep your head above water. So words become kind of, I would say, a solid thing, which you can hold on to to make yourself understood. He... I think you, you said this earlier as men just sort of like f- expressing emotions through their poetry, expressing vulnerability through their poetry. And rather than say like outright, like my desire is this or like by placing this ritual against um, those unaware of it, I am achieving such. He doesn't, he doesn't want to want to say that he just wants us to sort of like grasp for it because he's grasping for those words as well. Yeah. Yeah, I buy that. I I I mean that that makes sense to me. I, I think there are a lot of things, you know, what this sort of reminds me of in a funny way. I mean, it it's very different, but also somewhat similar. When I was in high school, it was, you know, the early two thousands emo revival. And I was really into Fallout Boy and My Chemical Romance. And I think it's Fallout Boy mainly who does this, is that their songs are just like 
exclusively clever wordplay, which as a teenager felt to me like very, like it must be packed with meaning. And then as an adult, I sort of realized that it's just cleverness without anything else underneath it. Um, and I, I think there are moments in Amichai's poetry where it's like there's not, there's nothing beyond um, a good turn of phrase that that we can actually come into contact with. Well, I don't want to call him like fucking Patrick Stump or whatever his name is. Is that his name? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't mean it in in a negative sense for for any of them i think that's fine i mean i'm you know i've always loved oscar wilde and that, and that was basically his whole deal theoretically i mean I, we can also have a debate about that but yeah I, i'm i'm thinking particularly of this portion about being gilded by my desire it's like i think amirai didn't intend for us to be able to figure out what his desire was you know we we have this phrase and and it's clever and it's interesting but we were never necessarily going to get to his experience that was behind it this is the only place where i can find his parents mentioned i don't know if that's just me doing bad research but by name i believe those are his parents and it's the only place i've I've found them in all of my research which encompasses a fuck ton (laughs) I don't know if he if he names them by name anywhere else. I'm not sure. I think something I want to remember about the the not knowing is that it's okay to to it's okay to not know, and it's okay to to be human in that. Like I feel like in this poem, he too accepts that. Like I think he phrases it kind of odd for me, um, or not odd, but like to place that he's blessing those that remain after him. And then that his body will not praise the new houses or the new bodies. And it doesn't say or there, but I'm in, I'm implicating the or there by doing that. Like it's, it's oxymoronic. I don't know. Like the, the gladiator whole thing where he's just like on his last stand fighting in a coliseum and like who who he's blessing is the person who will kill him. Right. It's linguistically linguistically relevant to know that in Hebrew and and or are the same conjunction. So it it definitely is an interpretive choice to say and. I don't think I don't think I had any Hebrew copies of this. There's only in that book they have some of it. Mhm. Yeah, they only have like one per section. Yeah, which is so odd. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, part of the reason also that my my boyfriend got this poetry collection for me is because Robert Alter, who edited it and who did some of the translations, is sort of a famous translator. Um, so it's it's also this volume is interesting to me, not just as poetry of Yehuda Amichai, but also sort of the work of one of the biblical geniuses of our time um, is also represented there. Yeah. And I guess for Amichai specifically too, Hebrew and writing in Hebrew is something he did. And he only translated some of his poems, but for the most part, and he mentions like reading in America, reading in English, he reads the translator's work of his own work. The Ted Hughes version of Amen, 
I believe, is the only one where he has any of his own translations. But otherwise, it's whoever has gone to it. And he goes to it and it sees, like, it's like listening to his voice on, on tape recorder and entrusting that representation. Where I think some of the translators, like Hannah Block, for instance, has mentioned, like, things might just get lost. There, there might just not be a way to do it. But maybe maybe the intertextual, like, knowledge... I mean, knowing that the or and the and are, are similar um, or the same opens up a whole world of what this poem could mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm a teacher of rabbinic era Jewish literature and and of other Jewish subjects. So I'm sort of living in this intertextual place all the time in my day to day life. and. I don't know. It's kind of funny. I, I hadn't as much as I got this, as much as this translation was given to me, you know, as the work of a translator, I rarely ever sort of think of the translator and myself as being similar, which is weird because like 90% of what I do is translation and sort of quibbling about translation. I don't know why for some reason, poetic translation and religious translation have felt so like, completely separate from each other for me as in like this is this is the first time sorry this is the first time you you've really compared the two okay yeah like this is the first time i've been like oh me and the person who translated this poem sort of do the same thing oh okay huh do you feel like and maybe maybe this is this is kind of this is kind of something you get at on your show on hi how are you I guess, like, let me ask you this: when you when you are looking at Talmud study on on that, are you doing your own translations in real time, or are you coming to the the text and translating it, or are you using sort of like a mixture of like people's translations and your own? Uh, what I usually do when I prep something for this show is I make my own translation and then I compare to other translations, and then I sort of. You know, I edit it if necessary, and then I bring that final product to the show. And then when I teach on my own, when I teach Talmud just in class, I mean, we spend like weeks translating each text and, you know, go in, go to a whole different level of depth. And do you always work from like one specific source? Yeah, so Talmud is is pretty... It's pretty universal what manuscript we work off of these days. That's been pretty institutionalized and and getting into different sources is is still a little bit beyond my means only because it involves translating like obscure scripts, which is a whole whole area of knowledge unto itself. Is it that you like feel trust in Alter's version? Because I don't remember this one. Yeah, this one's the Alter translation. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely feel trust in Alter's version. I've I've studied Alter's version of Hebrew Bible quite a bit, and so that really informs my relationship to his translation, um, and and my trust of it. Something that's that's interesting for me about reading this poem, you know, with any poem, I think with a good poem, you you have an experience of yourself in the role of the subject or in the role of the writer, you know, you have sort of a, a first person experience of the poetry. And, and I feel like that experience is doubled for me here because I feel like I have 
and like an experience of myself as the person swimming in the pool and also an experience of myself as the person translating a poem about swimming in the pool. I don't know if I have, um, I like that. I just don't know if I have anything to add. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, it, I don't even know if it adds to our understanding of the poem so much, just, uh, my unique experience of reading it. I think that is part of the poem. I don't know. I feel like I can be a very, I don't know, in this show too, it's, it's also just like, here's all this information about things. This is what the thing's about. Um, but that also has its limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think my idea of poetry is not, is not so much that it's intended to be understood as that it's, you know, good poetry is intended to provoke an experience. So to a, to a certain extent, having a long discussion of these poems, you know, which, which is really fun and, and really interesting. But at the end of the day, for me, like the quality of a poem is sort of determined as, as by whether it can provoke an experience in me. Hmm. It feels sort of similar to some things Hamahai has said. He's just like, I don't know. His reliance is like that the poem exists and that's kind of all that there is to it. Mm-hmm. And everything else is sort of like add on. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think there's a lot of poets who believe that. And I think it's also because he's like kind of like and I'm not I'm not comparing you to this. He kind of isn't like that Eliot, T.S. Eliot old school thought on poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to find the quote right now. But oh, yeah, he talks about how poetry only comes after things. That poetry is not the moment that things happen, which I kind of disagree with a lot. There's a lot of different points I disagree, but that's one. Like, I think poetry is the moment and the after. But certainly you don't sit down in the middle of crisis and write a poem and it turns out really good. Right. Every time. Like, that's not the soul of poetry, maybe. Right. I mean, if anything, I feel like there's uh, (laughs) maybe some some denial there on Amichai's part about how active his own trauma might still be. For sure. On that note, I'm going to read our last poem. Letters from a man in solitary. One. I scratched your name with my nail on the strap of my wristwatch. Where I am, you know, there's no such thing as a mother of pearl pen knife. Sharps are forbidden or a plane tree, its head in the clouds. Perhaps there is a tree in the yard, but I'm forbidden to see the sky over my head. How many are housed here apart from me? I don't know. I'm alone, far from them, and they're all far from me. I'm forbidden to speak to anyone but myself, but I do talk to myself. And as I find my conversation very boring, I sing, dear wife. What? You'll say? That voice of mine is rough and out of tune, but it touches me so deeply it breaks my heart. This heart, like a barefoot orphan in those old sad stories, struggling through the snow, his blue eyes wet, his little red nose sniffling, wants to bury himself in your bosom. It doesn't make me blush this moment. It's so frail, so needy, and simply so human. Perhaps the explanation lies in psychology, physiology, etc. Perhaps the reason is four months I've been prevented from hearing any other voice by this barred window, this earthenware jug.
these four walls. Five o'clock, my dear one. Outside, with its thirst, strange whispers, its mud-baked roofs, with a crippled and skinny horse standing motionless in the midst of infinity. Outside, driving the man inside crazy from grief. A scarlet evening, with all its bag and baggage, all its craft, descends on the step, on a treeless void. Tonight will come suddenly. Light will play about the crippled, skinny horse. Now, in a moment, stars will fill the treeless void of this no-hope nature that lies like a rough male corpse before me. Again, we've reached the familiar end of the business. Today, too, everything's in place, everything's ready for a great nostalgia. I, the man inside, will show my modest skill again with the thin piping voice of my childhood, with an old simple song on my lips, by God which will still defeat my grieving heart. I will hear you in my head, like watching you in a dim, distorted mirror so far away. Two. Outside, my love, the spring has come, the spring. Outside, suddenly over the step, the fresh earth smell, birdsong and all. Outside, my love, the spring has come, the spring. Outside, gleams of light on the step. And now inside. The mattress alive with insects, the jug that doesn't turn water to ice, and in the morning, sun on the cement. The sun, now every day till noon, near me or far, fading or radiant, moves. Day turns to afternoon, shadows fall on the walls. The glass on the barred window begins to catch fire. Outside, it's evening, a cloudless spring evening. Here, inside is spring's worst hour. In short, the demon called freedom, with his glittering, scaly skin, his fiery eyes, forces the man inside to submit, especially in spring. This experience is always the same, my love. Always the same. Three. Today is Sunday. Today, for the first time, they brought me into the sun. And for the first time in my life, I stood motionless in wonder how far away the sky, how blue, how vast. Then I humbly sat on the earth. I leaned my back on the wall. At this moment, no daydreams. At this moment, no struggle, no freedom, no wife. The earth, the sun, and I, I am happy. This is not the most popular translation of this poem. And some of it's like, I picked this one first or like, I, I didn't pick. Well, yeah, I did. I picked this poem first, but I read this poem first. And then like, there's, there's some errors I think between both translations. And so I think it's an imperfect translation, but I do enjoy certain things like the sharps are forbidden, which I think has been modernized a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Uh, this is sort of a non sequitur, but it's funny that T.S. Eliot came up because I feel like the second section of this had a real April is the cruelest month energy to it. I think uh, Eliot and Hickmet would fight if they, they saw each other. <laughs> <laughs> fight on sight. Yeah. That's fair. 
it was very um uh, parts of it felt felt very real to me or or very one of the things that that really drew me out about the experience in the poem is that um when i was in Washington, when I lived in Washington State, I used to do a lot of volunteer teaching for incarcerated people in Washington State prison system. And once upon a time, we did a sort of meditation, um, sort of dealing with gratitude. And one of the images used in this guided meditation was to think about a tree. And it was really emotional for for everyone because a lot a lot of them lived in a high security unit where they hadn't had any yard time much like hikmet in this poem for months and they were remembering you know trees from their childhood you know like trees outside their window trees in other countries and yeah i don't know it really i feel like i've i've met and and been with the sort of person who is in this state of having not seen a tree in months and and so that like landed as as very real for me yeah yeah this is um just feel like the context i guess to add on to that is that he spent i i believe it's only four months or so um which only feels like a really shit word for that in solitary confinement upon being arrested and this is the poems he wrote during that period or poem. It's a little weird if this is one poem or multiple. Um, it's always translated together, which is why I've included it as one. It's it's sectioned off like that. Anyway, he's in solitary just because they think if he is in the general popula- population, they're going to have a, a riot. And I mean, they're a little right. <laughs> they don't they don't have a riot afterwards, but. He organizes like a whole uh, cooperative within the prison system where like everybody shares resources, everybody shares uh, food and money. And like eventually they have this silk weaving business. But he spends these these months just like locked in here for the crime of, of writing his poetry and for having people read it. And this is like this is odd because this is the first poem versus another poem his like on living or lessons for a man uh on entering prison which are further down the line and sort of reflections this is his in the moment sort of against what we just talked about um writing poetry while it happens um yeah this poem's really vulnerable to me and i think where i think maybe i was like hesitant and like i don't think i i really addressed what you were talking about earlier with the, uh, the panties on the ground and like the faggotry and emasculation very well, honestly, but it makes me think of this moment where like Hikmet also is like willing to just say like, I'm horny. (laughs) Yeah. I'm allowed to be, I'm human. And he is, he's, he's, it's, it's one of the reasons his, his first marriage like does not, end up working out in the end or his second marriage this man had five lives yeah i mean i never really uh, my heart is never really open to the idea of horniness as a vulnerable position but yeah, i mean I, I i can see it through the lens of this poem i think about uh, i hate when i reference old episodes but like 
one of the points from the Pat Parker poem, Boots Are Being Polished, that I was reading last episode is just like to identify as a pervert, because at some point, like feeling your feelings is more important than allowing the shame to overtake. And sometimes just being like as frailly needy for the the thing that's being denied you, which is the communication with other people. So mm-hmm. I guess that's another thing about the tree and like the thinking about trees and your denial of the outside in this poem that also appears from what those people are experiencing in Washington. Cause outside's not so like clear and, and nice. It's nice to, to maybe like think about, but I, I feel like the thing with the spring for me is that spring also brings apart heat also brings apart um, the, the bugs that come in. And mm-hmm. when you're confined into a space like that, your freedom to move restricted to these like minor inconveniences that if you live a free life, you're able to like avoid or like create some sort of like uh, barrier of like you turn mm-hmm. the fan on. That's not, that's not being gifted. And it's also like the, the longing to be outside too. Right. I mean, I think it's 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 again sort of returning to the powerlessness of the first Amichai poem is very present here that this the sort of cycles of nature he he's being made very incredibly vulnerable to them. And and in the end, I mean, it's it's awkward to put a any positive spin on it, but in the end that very sort of like misery and vulnerability is what allows him to have this moment of complete sort of transcendent happiness. And I mean, this is debatable, but the, that's sort of the part of what I was getting at with my, with my experience of being the chicken <laughs> is that there's, there's often sort of a crucible of helplessness that precedes the possibility of what I would call a mystical experience. And I think that's, that's what he's having here is sort of a, a transcendent or mystical experience in the end. Could you, could you extrapolate on that a bit? I guess like transcendent is the word I'm, I'm thinking of, but I think mystical comes too. Cause when I read the end, no daydreams, no struggle, no freedom, no wife. And then it comes to the elemental earth, sun and I, um, and that causing happiness. What about the nose there? Is that is that what's reading the transcendentalness? Yeah, I mean that's what feels mystical about it to me is that he's he's been longing for freedom this entire time, and in the end, it's not only that he has attained freedom, but he's sort of transcended freedom in order to have a sort of experience of pure being by like leaving those things behind. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even I don't know if it's necessarily even leaving them behind, but sort of superseding them, if that makes sense. His time in that crucible of longing for freedom and longing for wife has just sort of been like encompassed into this moment. So I don't think it's, it's even not that he sort of turned away and said, I don't need freedom anymore, but just sort of that he, at least for this moment is in a state that's larger than the need for freedom or for wife. Mm. Like, sort of like a return, almost, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, a return to this, even to this sort of childhood 
that he that he references in the first section the thin piping voice of my childhood that that's sort of to me his his voice in section one is just sort of this seed of transcendence it's it's his voice that's able to defeat his grieving heart and then in the end i think this sort of primordial state he returns to is linked to that childhood voice i was thinking of like uh the the piece that actually got him in prison is called the epic of the sheik bedridden which is about an uprising historical and also like blurs that line um and is actually like it takes place in a prison uh, as part of it too but it's about this uprising and he has this footnote where he has to like remind people of <laughs> Marxists as human. <laughs> he says, I think of certain young men who pass for leftists and who will be saying things like, well, he separates his head and his heart. He says his head accepts the historical, social and economic conditions, but his heart still burns. Well, well, will you look at the Marxist? Marx, who knew that the Paris Commune would be overthrown, who knew the historical, social, and economic conditions necessitating its overthrow, didn't he feel the great dead of the Commune pass through his heart like a song of pain? A Marxist is not a mechanical man, a robot. He is, with his flesh, blood, nerves, head, and heart, a historically and socially concrete person. I think a lot of times, and I think this is not just now, but like, it would be, it, uh, this goes back to something I was saying earlier too. It'd be so much easier if we had non-human idols and just like very frank existences. If like we didn't have to think about the things in our childhood that have affected us to this point. If we didn't have to think about the successes and failures as part of the whole schema. Um, we just want revolution now. We just, we're, we're just turning that gear forward marching forward sometimes ruminating and like being one attributed to that uh is also very like draining so by maybe leaving all of the things that he mentions behind that are his only hopes that he can have the daydreams the struggle the freedom the wife is also like attaining them by that moment there's also this story about um, him in his second trial, which gets him the longer sentence of 28 years rather than the 15 he sentenced at the first time, where they take him aboard a ship and they lock him in the latrine. And like he's just there for four days stuck in the toilet uh, with all the sloshing around stuff. Wow. And he decides to just start singing to exactly antagonize the the captors to like let them know that his spirit has not died and that takes a lot of effort out of a person to continually have to to show that you're strong or show that you're like going to continue that also being vulnerable takes the strength too mm-hmm. right i mean it's very that feels like a, a common thread that's running through our poets today is sort of this particularly to me masculine experience of how to show up vulnerably is it like i feel like i'm I'm having a hard time like sticking to the poem um and i feel like i'm getting too like caught up in in history Mm. it's kind of odd to to place freedom as a demon 
especially like when when imprisoned like freedom is not freedom is the 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 grandest desire i guess is the way i'll phrase it but that's kind of right i mean i i think that's part of what suggested to me to to frame the whole thing as a mystical experience is because he's sort of experiencing his own desires as the as his enemy which is a very you know a thread that that crops up in in religious movements from time to time you know and so it's not his desire for freedom is is actually a a block to his experience of transcendent freedom Mm. the uh yeah i don't know maybe that's like um stations along the movement too i don't know that was a weird phrasing but right i mean he got he goes he moves between longing for freedom and wife rejecting freedom and and then ultimately towards moving beyond either one of those poles feels (laughs) entirely impossible in my own reality um but yet so so desirable yeah i mean i think i think one of the the things about about mystic movements is that uh, the mystic experience is, is almost always momentary and transient and you know i i really like this is way getting way off the poem and just sort of into my own experience of mysticism and thoughts about it but a a metaphor i've always appreciated is that you know we really can't manufacture those experiences of transcendence it's sort of like trying to get a cat to sit on your lap all you can do is sort of make your life sort of the most wonderful and comfortable lap possible and hope that the cat of a transcendent experience comes to sit on it and sort of what we spend all of our time doing is making our lives sort of you know, creating conditions where that kind of transcendence is more and more likely to arrive. But there's there's nothing you could do. You know, if you try to grab the cat and put it on your lap, that's a guaranteed way to not have a cat sit on your lap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a I think that's a perfect little metaphor. I don't know. I feel like often I'm very bad with um, that. I, I, or I, I think this year I've gotten much better at accepting the powerlessness of my myself that like God's hand in the world is kind of at, I don't know. I wanted to use the word submission earlier, but I didn't, I didn't feel it was accurate, but I kind of feel like it's accurate. Like, and and this is also the pandemic too. Just like, I don't feel the need to control everything. I would like the, (laughs) like everything to go how I want it to go, but it's not going to happen. (laughs) And I mean, this year I've, I've, I've determined that at the very least, like what I do is, is what I'm going to, to be responsible for. Um, and maybe not impress that on others. I guess like the comparative that I'm trying to make is that in letting things happen, letting the mystical moment, letting the, the transcendental moment happen. Um, we're not powerless where, where I think it, it can get, it easily gets construed that we are that by not being in control of every little thing, uh, having the exact right surroundings, there's something wrong freaking out. Right. I mean, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin 
said it really, really well in her Earthsea trilogy. She's uh, just definitely a philosopher slash author. I, I really respect. She said she realized, I mean, she said through the mouthpiece of one of her characters, she realized the greatest power in the world was not the power to do, but rather the power to accept. Yeah. Um, which is definitely a, a maxim I've always tried to live by since I read it. It feels, and I've been thinking about this since I heard a certain someone say it, needing more people to like sacrifice ourselves than uh than be selfish i don't know i i i, I it like sound it it rang true when when you said it and it's just it's something that's just like replaying in my mind in every single situation i'm i'm coming to of late um that beyond itself it's it's i don't know where i was going with that it just it just it just keeps replaying yeah, it's funny. I, I didn't really realize this at first, but this is just another commonality between our second poems, because I feel like the se- the second Amichai poem is sort of about Amichai, like releasing his identity and, and going into the great beyond. Yeah. And I think this this second Hikmet poem is also very, very on that theme. Mm. I I am not entirely a positive of Hikmet's like behavior or belief about spirituality rather than while part while living in Soviet Russia, he was part of like this peace. I forget the exact terminology, but this peace brigade is the way I'm going to rephrase to it. And when he went to Bulgaria, I believe he really reached out to the Turkish population in Bulgaria because what was happening is these Muslim Turkish people were being persecuted for being religious and like all these things trying to like push them out of their religion. And he like went out of his way to be like, I get that you're like saying all this stuff about, um, and I think this is probably, I don't know where it comes from in Marx, but religion as being sort of like antithetical to communist idea. Like he's, he's, he's like quoting that. And he's just like, that doesn't make any sense. Like these people believe and these people are are human and they're 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 th- doing this by doing this you're ostracizing them more and you're going against your ideals and if we stick in just like always attaining to the marxist idea always attaining to the the thing that has been come up before us we don't focus on the the here and now so i'm not sure i'm not sure how like specifically mystical it is but it it does seem to like do what hickman wants which is other people to come to his work and recognize something in it. Like there's something Turkish for it is something that uh, a few of the critics brought up. And that by speaking to people, I think both authors are trying to, to maybe against some of Amichai's like ideas of himself, like trying to speak for like the everyman and actually succeeding. Right. Right. It's, I think I don't know. I don't know if this is true or not, but I I off I think that speaking to the everyman is one of those poetic ideals that also sort of it's it's rare to be able to do it intentionally <laughs> in someone's work. It's rare that someone sets out to do that and succeeds. Yeah, there's a specific quote from Mapichai uh, who uh, talks about how he hates the Bolshevik poets. <laughs> And he, he pretty much like specifically calls out like Mayakovsky, among some others. 
yet I think he's also trying to like be a poet of the people. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think like it's it's so strained by writing about the personal experience by writing about the individual. You do achieve that that connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I'm 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 starting to run out of steam. I got to say that's OK. This is a, a good time to cut it down. Would you like to plug at this moment? I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, anything you would like? Uh, yeah, sure. Everyone uh, come listen to my podcast. I make a podcast about queer Talmud called Chai, How Are You? That's X-A-I, how are you? <laughs> X-A-I-H-W-A-R-E-Y-O-U, question mark. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. and. I like to think it's pretty entertaining. And yeah, that's it. That's my that's my only plug. That's fine. Um, yeah, definitely go list, give it a listen. I do tune in um, and I, I do find it very enjoyable. I'm honored. I'm honored to have you tune in. There is a, there's no way to end it. So thank you for coming on and thank you for talking with me. Yeah, my pleasure. 